Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public television series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. All programs will continue streaming on Searching for Meaning .org in both English and in Spanish with closed captions thanks to the support from the U.S. Department of Education. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, faith leaders, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we can include in the broadcast series. And I gratefully acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This conversation is with Pascal Usch, Assistant Professor of Astronomy at the University of Geneva. His specialty is the study of the very earliest and youngest galaxies in the observable universe. To reach out in space and back in time, he and his colleagues used Earth's most powerful telescopes, including the Hubble Space Telescope, and now also the James Webb Space Telescope, launched in 2022. As you'll hear, Pascal was co-discoverer of a galaxy known as GNZ-11, which was, for half a decade, the most distant galaxy known. More recently, he was awarded time on the Webb Telescope, which has already found still more distant and older galaxies, reaching back closer to the origin of the universe, the Big Bang. Pascal considers himself and his colleagues explorers like those who travel to Earth's poles. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a thrilling experience, it's like an explorer that went uh, exploring the, the South Pole or, the, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're pushing the boundary of, of our knowledge. I sat down with Pascal in the rather echoey ballroom of the Victoria Jungfrau Hotel in Interlaken, Switzerland, quite close to the town of Bern, where Albert Einstein was living in 1905 when he first came up with his revolutionary theories of time and space. I'm sitting here with astronomer Pascal Usch. He and his collaborators discovered the most distant object ever seen. It's a galaxy called GNZ11, and its light had to travel 13.4 billion years to get from there to Pascal's telescope. It's just about at the edge of the observable universe. It's very nice to meet you, Pascal. Very nice to meet you, Alan. Thank you. So how did you get interested in astronomy? Well, uh, I mean, I wasn't always interested in astronomy as a child. Uh, I really started off, uh, I was interested in nature. I wanted to understand how things work, you know, like a radio, for instance. And uh, so in, in school, I was quite good, both in languages and math. And uh, here in Switzerland, when you enter in high school, you have to uh, kind of choose uh, three different tracks. Uh, one is the language track, uh, STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, math track, or an economics track. 
And, but I was interested maybe also later on doing medicine, for instance. And so I knew for medicine, you needed to have a bit of uh, Latin. And so I, I chose the language track to keep all my options uh, open in a sense. And then I, uh, in, in high school, uh, I was, uh, I had some very good teachers in, in, in biology and particular physics as well, that were very inspiring. And so I, yeah, I wanted to understand the universe more and I got really interested in that. So then in, it was kind of easy to choose physics as, as a study. And so I was at ETH in Zurich where Albert Einstein was also studying about hundred years earlier. And so, and there, uh, yeah, so I was studying physics there. Um, and so I remember we had this uh, observational cosmology class uh, and there uh, we learned about the cosmic microwave background. And I remember distinctly this, this picture of, uh, you know, the observer Earth here in the middle and then this sphere of the cosmic microwave background around us, which is 380,000 years after the Big Bang. The cosmic microwave background that Pascal is referring to was first detected by accident by researchers at Bell Labs a leading research laboratory for the telephone company. Using a radio telescope, they found a persistent hum in every direction. At first, the astronomers thought that the hum might be static caused by pigeon poop on their telescope. But other scientists realized that the noise was actually a radio signal coming from the very early universe. Slight variations in the cosmic radio waves revealed clues to the emerging structure of the young universe. For that work, the researchers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias won the 1978 Nobel Prize in Physics. And to me, this was just amazing that we can, you know, see how the universe was, the, the structure of the universe uh, at, at this extreme early time and then all the way around us, right? I mean, I had known that the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, was this background radiation from the very early universe before, but just seeing this physical, this picture of this sphere that we can see around us, um, that was really, uh, you know, was really uh, inspiring. And so then I chose uh, astronomy uh, courses during, uh, you know, more focused astronomy courses during my studies. As one of my first projects, I was uh, able to work with some of the deepest data from the Hubble Space Telescope. And so my, my supervisor included me in this, in this really cutting edge uh, research already. And so I was able to, at that time, those were only galaxies 12.5 billion years back in time. But still, I was able to, you know, look at these images, select these and identify uh, these uh, very, very distant sources of light. And that was just amazing. And so I was hooked at, at that point, yeah. Even at 12.5 billion years, light years away, that, that's still very, very far away. Yeah. I've seen with my naked eye, uh, as many people have, uh, Saturn and Venus and Jupiter. And I sort of feel like I know them, like they're, they're part of my world. They're part of the solar system. I feel comfortable with them. And I've even seen the Andromeda galaxy, two and a half million light years away. Uh, you can see that with your naked eye on a dark night. I don't understand how you can feel part of something that's, that's billions of light years away. Yeah, at this point, I mean, those are distances that we cannot uh, grasp, right? These are just well beyond anything that we can understand. It's, in a sense, it's just a number. But nevertheless, I mean, we, with astronomers, we are like archaeologists. Right? We're, we're taking these deep images of a tiny portion of the sky. And, uh, and in that sense, we can 
we see that those things existed out there in the universe. So they are a part of, of nature, right? How the universe, uh, they're part of the universe in that sense. Do you feel that that's part of the same nature that Goethe and Emily Dickinson talked about? I don't know. Uh, yeah, in a sense, I, well, they're, they're part of the physical, uh, of the physics, right, of the universe. And, and what we can see with our telescopes is just a snapshot of how the universe was at that particular time. So they're definitely out there and they're real, in a sense. What is uh, the this distant galaxy that you and your collaborators discovered, GNZ11, what does it look like? GNZ11, yeah, at this point with the Hubble Space Telescope, we only have very limited information. Uh, there's only a few pixels across, um, but we know that it's quite a compact uh, galaxy. We can still measure its size. It has some extension as well to it. And uh, we, well, the size that we measure for this source is about one uh, twenty-fifth only of the size of our current, uh, for Milky Way of our galaxy. Um, but we can also estimate its mass. So we have observations with the Hubble Space Telescope, Spitzer Space Telescope, and we combine these two together. While the Hubble Space Telescope is well known, NASA's Spitzer Telescope adds the ability to see the universe in infrared light, revealing aspects of stars and galaxies invisible in the optical wavelengths our eyes can see. We can estimate the mass of this object and uh, we, we can estimate that it has roughly a billion uh, solar masses uh, in stars, so about a billion uh, stars already at this very early time. And that was one of the big surprises really uh, from, from this discovery uh, that we really did not expect to find such a, such a luminous uh, so we really did not expect to find such a luminous uh, galaxy so early on in, in cosmic history. Pascal, could you describe GNZ11 in human terms? Yeah, so we're seeing this galaxy in the very early universe, when the universe is only 400 million years old, meaning that's all about 3% uh, of, its, uh, of its current age. So it was, we we're seeing this galaxy in, in a toddler stage of the universe. And uh, in, in all terms, it was really just a wimpy galaxy at a point. It had only only a billion solar masses in stars, which is 100 the uh, mass of our current Milky Way, which is the normal galaxy in the universe today. So it was, uh, you know, really just growing uh, in the very early universe, it was building up uh, one of, as one of the first uh, sources of light, really. Uh, and, uh, and and growing uh, faster than the Milky Way today. It had a uh, star formation rate, so it was converting gas into stars at a rate that is about 20 times larger than uh, our current uh, Milky Way. But, but yeah, in all terms, uh, of, compared to galaxies today, it was a, a very wimpy galaxy. So, time. But it was a very active toddler. But it was a very active toddler indeed. Yeah, like like a two-year-old. <laughs> that, that's right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the universe at that time, if you if you yeah, three percent of its age, it's roughly the universe roughly two years old in a sense. Just learn to 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 walk and uh, and start to and learn to build some galaxies. Yeah. My two-year-old was quite active at, <laughs> yeah. at that age, and my grandchild at two is also very active. Right. So when you when you found it, when you identified it with at this enormous distance. How did you feel? Was it a shock? Was it a surprise? Uh, yeah, it was definitely uh, surprising because in particular with the Hubble Space Telescope, we had images. So we first identified this uh, source back in 2014 or so in images of the Goods field. So that's why the, the name GN. So we 
we observed this galaxy with imaging, and, and so we estimated the distance from, from those images um, that was actually a bit closer than, uh, than what we found in the end. Um, so we observed this galaxy uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope, and then we took uh, spectroscopy also with, with Hubble, so meaning that we could split the light uh, like a prism. We, 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 yeah, we split the light and we were able to measure the distance much more accurately. And I remember uh, having, getting this email from my uh, good collaborator and friend, uh, Gabe Bremer, who had you know, had this, he has a, a pipeline of uh, processing uh, code that, that processed the data from the Hubble Space Telescope as it was observed. And uh, so he was writing after the first set of data uh, came in, he was uh, writing an email saying, well, it looks a little, uh, looks a little red, maybe redshift 11 or question mark. And so redshift is the distance of, of this galaxy. It helps to think about what astronomers call the redshift by an analogy to sound. If a train whistle or police car siren is approaching you very fast, the sound appears higher in pitch. Once past you, the pitch drops to lower frequencies. In the same way, light from a galaxy moving away from Earth shifts to lower frequencies towards the red end of the spectrum. That's the redshift. By measuring the amount of redshift, you can calculate how fast the galaxy's moving. That speed then tells you its distance, since distance is proportional to speed in an expanding universe. And so then he was wondering, we were back and forth, whether this is possible given the photometry, given the images that we had of the source. And, uh, and but yeah, so in the end, it turned out that we got more and more data and uh, it got more and more clear that actually it's, it's even further than we, we had originally thought. Um, and so that was really quite exciting and, and we knew we were up to something, you know, uh, really quite interesting. Because at that point, the most distant object uh, was only at redshift 8.7, which is a bit, you know, it's not much, but it's 150 million years uh, later in time. It was clear that this source, this distance would, this would remain the record for, for quite a while. Sort of like finding skeletons of, of early humans that are much older than you than you would thought, expect. Than you expected. When you, when you first realized that, that you would discover this object at, at the edge of the universe, did you tell friends? Uh, who did you tell about this? First, uh, first with all the collaborators, right? Mm -hmm. And then it goes through peer review. So it's a, actually a, quite a long process. We submitted the paper to Nature, it was rejected, you know, because uh, the signal was not uh, quite good enough for, for the Nature uh, Journal. Mm -hmm. So we went back and we uh, managed to address some of those comments and resubmit it to the Astrophysical Journal uh, and then it got accepted. And so once it gets accepted as a, as a peer-reviewed paper, then you know, we have a press release with images like these. Um, and, uh, and so I was, uh, just met this girl, uh, you know, and uh, we, we had uh, just one date, I think, before that. And so I told her, uh, you know, there's going to be some big news. Uh, maybe see if you, if you can find it. And so indeed she... Yeah. So you didn't tell her the news ahead of time? I did not, no. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, she found out uh, what it was and uh, she was like, oh, did you find the most distant galaxy? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> not, not every guy can tell a, a, a partner. Good, it's a good pickup line now. It's a good pickup line. Um, <laughs> So yeah. was she impressed? Uh, I think she was very impressed. Yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, you know, 
I mean, I was more lucky, right? Then, then uh, I was not really looking for this particular source. Yeah. It just uh, jumped out in the data, and then we got follow-up observations. And you know, you, that's that's how it works in science, right? You you find something, and then you investigate further, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes you get uh, you know get lucky and find the most distant galaxy. Well, a lot of great discoveries in science have been made by luck. Uh, Alexander Fleming found uh, penicillin by luck. Uh, cosmic background radiation by Penzias and Wilson was found by luck. So yeah, luck plays a role in science. Absolutely. I, I mean, you cannot uh, look for something that you know. Well, no, so you cannot, yeah, if, if there's something unexpected, right? You, you cannot look for something that is unexpected in a sense. So it, it just pops up, yeah. But you have to have a prepared mind. You, when, you, when you find it, you have to know That's right. what its significance is. You have to realize what it is, which is yes. not necessarily true with the cosmic microwave background radiation, right? It took quite no, a while, it took to, a while to realize yeah. what, what this really was. Yeah. And, and how fundamental it really was. Yes. Well, I think Alexander Fleming knew pretty quickly that he had found uh, an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. But of course, it took many years before it was perfected and used. Now, um, my understanding is that you, you found this object with the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, there's, there are no human beings looking out of the eyepiece of that telescope. Wow. And, and even for, for ground-based telescopes, uh, my understanding is that today most astronomers are not looking out of the eyepiece. They're seeing the, the object on a cons computer screen, which could be 3,000 miles away. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's how, how it works. It's all digital at this point. Uh, we're, uh, well, in particular with the Hubble Space Telescope, of course, there's no way you can, you can be out there. But also with uh, ground-based telescopes, uh, essentially you... When you when you get a, an observing proposal accepted, you you prepare the observations uh, how you want it to be done, and you send them, and then some they will be observed for you in a sense, and then you get the data on an archive, and you can download it and uh, uh, and work on it. Yeah. So would it be fair to say that that not many astronomers today are actually looking through the eyepiece of the telescope? Uh, yes, that's absolutely true. Professional, professional astronomers—that's—that's—that's uh, that's, that's a time of the past. Uh, I mean, it's good and bad, right? In a sense, because, like, for instance, the deepest image that we have of the universe, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field, is a, a two million second exposure, right? In a sense, that I mean, you know, you cannot do it with your eyes, right? But that's how deep we have to have to expose to if if you really want to push to the edge of the universe and find. Uh, that's several galaxies. weeks. Two million. That's that's a month, full a month. month. Yes. Uh, well, with different filters. Yeah. But over the last uh, three decades, that Hubble Space Telescope has been in orbit. This is the one field that we have always come back to as the reference field, really, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Well, I wonder um, the fact that that most astronomers today are not looking directly out of the, the the eyepiece of a telescope. Whether that diminishes their feeling of being connected to what they're looking at that it, it, it sort of disconnects them from the objects they're they're looking at do, yeah. do you have any sense of that that's that's probably probably right uh, in a sense that uh, yeah it's it's in the end it's just data right that you get you get pixels and then they're, they're just black and white in a sense I remember distinctly had a student at ETH and uh, we had had this astronomy week uh, where we you know up on the mountain and looking through the eyepiece and indeed looking at at the stars or at galaxies even 
And, uh, and then she came back because she was excited about this. And uh, she came back and, and wanted to do a project with us. And we gave her data from the Hubble Space Telescope. And, and she was completely frustrated because that's exactly not what, what she wanted. And, and it's true that in a sense, it's, it's a bit more abstract, right? In that sense. It's more abstract. Yeah. I think one way you can look at the history of science uh, as we develop uh, greater and greater technology to be able to see things that are beyond human sense perception, uh, that we have gotten more and more separated from nature or, or from the object of study, that we're seeing them only in this, this mediated sense with all of these instruments in between us yeah. and the things that we're studying. Yeah, that's uh, probably right. But again, in the sense, in the, in the, for the for GNZ11, for instance, uh, the source can only be seen at uh, 1.6 micron in the near infrared, so where our eyes will not be able to see in any case. So technology helps us, right, to see this uh, this galaxy. And and the thing is, we can always repeat these observations, and it's still there in a sense. So that's you know, in a sense, that at least that gives you gives it, gives it some uh, reality. I know that that your specialty is galaxy formation, or that's one of your specialties. Uh, why is it important for us to understand how galaxies form? Well, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the very early uh, stages of, of galaxy formation. And I mean, in a sense, we're pushing back uh, in time, as I said, well, with, with this particular source, we're here looking 13.4 billion years back in cosmic history, um, seeing some of the we're seeing the universe when it was only 3% of its uh, present uh, age. And so kind of on the big question we're trying to understand is, well, if you look around us in the universe, uh, where did this all come from? What are our, our cosmic origins? So those are some questions that people have been asking themselves for, for centuries, for millennia even, right? Mm -hmm. Every every civilization that we know of has been looking up in the sky and trying to figure out well, what are what is this what is our place in the universe uh, or what is yeah how are we connected to this and uh, and this is where it all started right this galaxy in particular is one of the first building blocks of uh, the galaxies that we see around us in the universe today um, and uh, i mean carl sagan said that we're all made of star stuff and uh, and again this is these very early uh, galaxies that's where this process started, where the heavy elements, the star stuff, was created. So do you think that there, I, I know most scientists believe there's life elsewhere in the universe. Do you think there could be any life on GNZ11? I guess so. Uh, not at the time, not like uh, as we see it. Uh, as we see it now, we're, uh, we're seeing it, what it looked like 13.4 billion years ago. Exactly. So at that time, the, it was very young. It was actively forming stars. It, uh, yeah, the universe itself was only 400 million years old. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, there's no life at that time. But, you know, by today, 13.4 billion years later, there was plenty of time uh, to, for life to evolve. And, uh, and it, was, it was growing more and more stars, it was building more and more stars. Uh, all of these stars might have had some planets around them, and on those planets, who knows, yeah, what uh, might have evolved. So this, this galaxy, the, the most distant object ever seen in the universe, GNZ 11, it's probably uh, much older than our galaxy. So what do you think it looks like today? If, if it were next door to us, what would it look like? If it were next door to us, uh, it most likely would be a dead galaxy. That, a, dead, a dead galaxy? A dead galaxy in the sense that uh, one of those elliptical galaxies uh, that we see around in the universe as well, which uh, stopped to form stars, they, they ran out of all of their gas. So galaxies 
to form stars, they need gas, so they convert the gas into stars. Um, and at some point, uh, they, they run out of, of this uh, gas, and so they stop forming stars, and then we can just see an aging uh, population. And, and so that's kind of what we imagine uh, is the end stages of, of galaxy formation, really, of the trajectory of galaxies is uh, from star forming young, active galaxies to you know, quiescent, uh, uh, dead galaxies, uh, ellipticals. But there would still be some stars left. The, the smaller stars would still be shining. Absolutely, yeah. And by the time we've, as we've seen this galaxy 13.4 billion years ago, it was still actively forming stars. Unfortunately, in astronomy, as I said, we're, we're like archaeologists, we can only get a snapshot of what was. We cannot go forward in time and, and see how this galaxy would look like today. We can model uh, the, the build-up of galaxy population as a, as a whole, uh, also in computer simulations, and in this way kind of interpolate of what we might uh, expect from, from this galaxy. And so I think given that it was so massive so early on, it would have uh, continued to accrete uh, gas, build more stars until it, uh, until it was a very massive galaxy, 100 uh, billion solar masses or something like that. Um, but then uh, probably stopped uh, to form stars yeah. and, and be an elliptical galaxy. So eventually all the stars will burn out. Well, eventually, yeah, eventually. very long term. Indeed, you know, maybe a hundred billion years or so. I don't know, yeah, yeah. About 20 years ago, um, uh, and I'm sure you know this better than I do, that uh, we discovered that the universe is accelerating. It's not only expanding, but it's accelerating. And that means that there will be some point in, in the future maybe 100 billion years from now, where we will not be able to see any other galaxies and, and the universe, except maybe the nearest one. That's right. And trauma. So we will be literally cut off from the rest of the universe. Yeah, that will be a sad uh, future in a sense, no? It may be the end of life, of all life in the universe, because um, life needs energy. And when all the stars have burned out and different galaxies can't exchange any information or energy it could be the end of life yeah absolutely i mean well we don't yeah exactly yeah it uh, yeah. at some point the star our sun right will yeah. will will burn out and uh, yeah by that time i don't know we might yeah. have had to move to another planet uh, well so it wouldn't uh, just be life system. like us it would be i mean when there's no energy source left yeah. uh, uh so let me ask you kind of an off the wall question if there were some omniscient being who understood how galaxies formed who understood how our universe came into being, how the Big Bang happened, understood everything. If you could push a button and learn all of that, would you push the button? <laughs> That's a very interesting question, yeah. I mean, in some sense, we're, we're always trying to push the boundary uh, as scientists of, of our knowledge and, and get further. Uh, and it's also a bit about the process. I mean, it's a very exciting uh, thing when you find a very distant galaxy, something unexpected, um, and you have a new scientific result, and it's it's really it's a thrilling experience. Uh, I'm sure you know, and it's also a bit addictive in a sense, and that's what also makes what makes uh, being a scientist uh, so interesting. It's addictive, you say? I think so. Don't you think? Yes, I would agree with that. Well, uh, it seems to me, that even if the universe were infinite, that does not necessarily mean that, that there isn't a final theory. Um, I, I don't believe in the final theory myself. Um, mm. Just the history of science sort of yeah. argues against it. Yes, but... no, I agree. Pascal, you mentioned earlier that astronomers are like archaeologists. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, so the speed of light is finite, which is 300,000 kilometers per second, roughly. And so when we look at distant objects, the light that uh, is coming from these sources takes uh, a finite amount of time. And so the further we look, the further we look back in, in time, actually, because the light is just traveling towards us. And at the same time, the universe is expanding as well, so the, we're looking further and further uh, back in time. Uh, and so for the source here, the source GNZ11, uh, the light took 13.4 billion years really to reach us uh, on, its, on its way here. By the time actually the, the source was, uh, this light was emitted, uh, the Milky Way, well, the current location of the Milky Way and, and GNZ11, there were only 3 billion, slightly less than 3 billion light years apart from each other. But by the time uh, yeah, that this light was traveling towards us, the universe is expanding. In the end, it took 13.4 billion years to reach us. Uh, that's a mouthful, GNC 11. Uh, have you ever been attempted to, 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 attempted to name it anything else? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Some uh, good friends of mine uh, were making fun of me for, for this uh, particular name. And in particular, my wife, uh, she had a very good idea. It's still the best one that I that uh, I heard, which is, uh, so we should have, she said, we should have uh, called this galaxy Lucy, because Lucy was one of the first uh, human ancestors uh, that, or that, yeah, that we've uh, found. Um, but uh, anyway, I'll keep Lucy for, for the next uh, most galaxy. For your next galaxy. discovery. That's right. When you and your collaborators discovered uh, GNZ11, or Lucy, <laughs> right? <laughs> were you competing with other groups at that time? Well, there was always, there's always a hunt for the most distant uh, galaxies. And actually in the same year, uh, in, in 2015, when we uh, originally found this uh, source, um, there had been three distance records uh, already announced. Uh, you know, so the, we were going further and further. Um, and uh, I was part of it. So for a very short time, I had the most distant uh, galaxy, which was called EGS ZS81. So even worse than uh, the uh, GNZ11. Um, but yeah, there's always a competition for finding uh, the most exciting object, which is uh, in this case the most distant object. Um, and so, uh, yeah, indeed, there were other teams that were, were looking at this uh, source um, in, in general, uh, in this in the same data from the Hubble Space Telescope, what we see here in the background. Um, but yeah, we had identified this uh, galaxy and uh, then actually got follow-up observations that were approved with the Hubble Space Telescope to get spectroscopy to really actually measure the distance for the source uh, much more accurately, which then we we managed so to do. This uh, this competition sounds like uh, trying to set records of of, of speed and and, and Olympic. <laughs> in this country race or something. In this sense, yeah, it's a little bit, uh, a little bit like that, right? Where uh, there's international teams working on uh, on uh, understanding the early universe and finding uh, a very distant object, in particular like this one that we have not been expecting. It was so luminous um, in this very small area of the sky that we have observed that we have not been expecting to find such a, a luminous galaxy. And that really changed us a bit of our understanding of uh, galaxy buildup in the early universe. So what this has been showing is that galaxy formation was well underway 400 million years after the Big Bang already. Um, and uh, meaning that, you know, there's definitely galaxies even further out there. And we try to understand, we want to understand where uh, where this all started. But, but there, you said there were other groups that were also looking for the most distant object. Um, I know that when, when DNA was discovered, that Watson and Crick were in a race with Linus Pauling. 
to, to be the first. They 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 thought that that they were very close to discovering the structure of DNA, and um, there was a competition between them. Uh, do you think that, that that competition between different groups in science is a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a, a healthy competition is a very very good thing, right? In a sense, because where it it moves science forward faster than it would, you know, without any any competition. Uh, in a sense, uh, it keeps you up at night. You want to, uh, you, you want to be the first. You want to understand uh, the early universe. You want to understand these uh, galaxies. What, what does it feel like to be the first to discover something? I mean, it's a very exciting. Uh, uh, it's a very exciting feeling, and uh, it's it's very thrilling, and also a bit addictive. Uh, like we were saying, uh, addictive. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, it's finding. Well, okay, understanding a physical uh, process, for instance, uh, if you're the first to understand this physical process or uh, finding the source, then you're, you're the first one to see a galaxy that uh, has traveled, uh, this light has traveled 13.4 billion years. I mean, it's very exciting, no? And uh, yeah. Well, most addictions that I know of, you need more and more and more. Does this mean <laughs> that you're, you're now looking for even more distant? Objects. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yeah. With the Hubble Space Telescope, unfortunately, we have really reached, reached the... So with the Hubble Space Telescope, we have really reached the limit of what we can do. Unfortunately, given uh, the wavelength range that we can cover with uh, this, uh, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And so that's what we've, uh, what we've achieved with uh, this particular galaxy with, with Hubble. So we cannot go any further. Are there other telescopes that are now in the works that will be able to see even further? With James Webb, uh, it will be extremely easy to go you know, further than, than James 11. So it won't be the record holder for much longer. Do you, sure. do you have do you personally have any projects on the James Webb telescope? No, absolutely yes. You know, I was I was lucky enough to uh, be selected. So it's a very competitive process, and I was lucky enough to be uh, approved. Three programs of mine have been approved, and and others that I'm collaborating with. Um, and so we're uh, it's it's a it's a completely revolutionary telescope, really, for and designed for finding first light uh, in the universe, and so the first galaxies. When, when we look at things so incredibly far away, does it make us feel small? I mean, if we start with Copernicus, who uh, said that the, the Earth is not the center of the solar system, and then we found in the 1920s that our solar system is on the edge of a galaxy, and then there are many other galaxies, and now we're looking at galaxies that are billions and billions of light years away. Does it make us smaller? Uh, I think so. Uh, it's a humbling thought. If you it, so, the distances are so big that you cannot really grasp it, even as an astronomer, uh, in a sense. But uh, it's a humbling thought, right? To to realize that there's just so much out there, so many galaxies out there, so many stars, so many planets, uh, that uh, we are just uh, you know a tiny little speck in the universe, really. Um, are there are there any ways in which it could make us bigger? Uh, well, I mean, the amazing, the big thing about humanity is that we are here in this little, on this little planet, on this little speck in the universe, and we can, you know, see and understand what is going on all the way on the other side of the universe, 13.4 uh, billion years ago. Um, and so I think, that in that sense, I think we're, that's a, an, a big and an amazing achievement. I'm a physicist, and we physicists can do experiments with the things that we're talking about. We can control the magnetic field and electric field, and but uh, astronomers can't really control 
uh, the experiment. Uh, it's way out there in outer space, and you can't just turn up the magnetic field of a neutron star or make a galaxy rotate so you can have a different view. Um, is that frustrating that you can't control the experiment? That's right. It's a little, uh, well, it's a little frustrating indeed because uh, astronomy, in a sense, is, is quite a passive uh, science in that sense that uh, indeed we can, all we get is the photons, the light uh, of these distant uh, galaxies. Um, and then we have to piece together the puzzles, right? We are observing uh, galaxies with different telescopes, different uh, wavelengths, in a sense, that gives us different information. So it's, it's a different type of puzzle different type of science um, um, and we cannot create a galaxy in the lab for instance right uh, the distances and, and everything is just uh, so big but uh, but uh, indeed we're as i was mentioning earlier really like archaeologists in in the same way uh, they cannot recreate uh, you know yeah the civilizations as they were in the past for instance or, or whatever but but you're you're digging further and further uh, back in 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 time and in particular with our uh, with our observations of the Hubble Space, with the Hubble Space Telescope, with the very deep observations, where we can get snapshots of the galaxy population as it was, snapshots of the universe at different times, and then trace uh, the time forward in a sense and see uh, how these galaxies were building up. And that's also something quite unique in a sense. Uh, as physicists, you cannot just go back 13.4 billion years. No, nope. uh, <laughs> you can't either. Yeah. Do you think that, that emotions play a role in science? Emotions? Emotions. Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, what, what it's, way? it's uh, we were talking a bit earlier about the, the drive of, of trying to be the first to find out uh, a given, a, a given uh, process or the first to find uh, the most distant galaxy in a sense. And so that's definitely very emotional well it's also a bit of an ego uh, process right um that you that you're that is driving uh people to to push forward and, and to work at overnight and uh, and to work weekends and so on uh, yeah do, do you think that emotions uh can have a negative effect for a scientist uh yeah probably i would say so yeah i mean in particular if the ego gets uh, gets too much uh, in the way right that you can uh, maybe uh, go astray a little bit and uh, and uh, indeed uh, well but I think it's it's a good thing that uh, in the end the scientists are humans and are trying to to bring well humanity forward in a sense and uh, in, uh, advance our understanding of the universe of, uh, yeah. uh, you've been an astronomer uh, for uh, 20 years I'm just guessing 15 years yeah. 15 years so how has it changed your own life and your your view of of the world uh not necessarily the cosmos as a whole but just your, your daily life on earth has how has it changed that being an astronomer being an astronomer well i'm working much more than i would like to i guess uh i mean it's it's but it's such a fun job uh, really that I, I really enjoy doing the science i enjoy uh, going to work uh, every morning and uh, and looking at data from the hubble space telescope let's say um, so in that sense, uh, yeah, it's it's really very fulfilling um, to be able to do this job, which is uh, it's quite a privilege, really, that we are, you know, able to just you know look up in the sky in a sense and uh, and get get paid for it, in a sense. Yeah. Thanks to Pascal Usch for explaining why the hunt for the most distant galaxies is so important. 
and so personally rewarding. That personal passion links all our conversations for the Searching mini-series. The scientists love their work. For them, it's not just intellectually engaging, but personally and deeply exciting. We hope you catch some of that passion in these podcasts. Thanks also to you for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science.